Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Sean Martin. He's a leadership junkie, recovering software engineer, fellow podcaster, and a doggy daddy. He's here today to talk about isolation, DUIs, and dreams coming true. Sean, welcome. Hey, I wanted to know, since you're a wild card conversation haver, <laughs> have you been playing any South Park? I haven't been playing any South Park in the last week or two. But I definitely played a solid couple of hours. After not playing for like a year, I played a little The Fractured Butt Hole, which is the best name to a video game ever, by the way. The name of the, of the game is The Fractured Butt Hole. So depending on the cadence in which you say it, The Fractured Butt Hole. The game is a turn-based role-playing game, which I am not into at all. But it's South Park, so it's freaking hilarious and it's awesome. And your character is the new kid in town and you eventually discover you have superpowers that are all based in your farts. And so that's why it's called the fractured butt hole because you have butt powers. Um, <laughs> I've played, yeah, so not, not like in the last week or so, but that game is, it's rich. And it's, I feel like you could sit around and play that game for like five hours. And you just feel like you've been watching like five hours of South Park and it doesn't get old. It's golden. And I told you before when we did uh, my podcast, Parker and Stone are geniuses. That is a great segue into another thing that we've talked about. You told me that you make up words. Yes, I, I, I've made up a few. They don't always catch on, but the one that I'm proudest of, you know, and this goes back to Stephen Colbert and watching Colbert Rapport for so many years. And, you know, I started watching Colbert Rapport, I think when I was still kind of a staunch Fox News Republican and taking everything very seriously in the early to mid 2000s, like the aughts there. And he came up with truthiness and, you know, I just loved his show and loved The Daily Show and everything like that. And at some point in time, I invented a word that's, it's not even a word so much as it's a, uh, an expression. And that word is douche, which is a take on touche. And what it basically means as an expression when you say, oh, douche, is you make a good point, but you're a douchebag for pointing it out. And I, I don't know, I, I find that to be a very useful term, even when I only think it to myself. I can think, oh, douche, Monfrey. Oh my God, that's so good. Okay, you got to tell me your other one that you came up with. I think it's around coronavirus. Oh yeah, what was that? Oh yeah, I was in a check-in. So by day, my, my Bruce Wayne is I am a director of engineering for an ed tech company. And I've got about 20 wonderful engineering folks who for some odd reason rely on me. And I was in a conversation with my quality assurance, my QA team. And one of the members of my team was defending some of the things that he did and was saying, I don't know if I should be defending myself. I just, I feel a little bit on edge because of Corona. And I said, dude, just ignore the coronoia and let's move on. And he's like, the what? And I said, Corona-based paranoia, your coronoia. And he just started laughing. He's like, what is that? I'm like, I don't know. It just came to me. These are the useless things that come out of my brain sometimes are, you know, words like douche and coronoia, which I think both have a place in Webster's. I don't, I don't know. That's, it's not really up to me, but. I think that maybe you should try using some of those terms when you're dealing with difficult people. So always. Uh, <laughs> I would agree. I think that uh, sometimes using words like that I can be a pretty intense person. Um, I'm not sure you've ever noticed this and, and I'm sure other people don't notice it, but sometimes I take things really seriously in the moment and I've learned a lot over the last few years to have more fun with things and to take things a little bit more playfully and lightly and sometimes injecting a douche or a coronoia or I'm actually like at a loss for some of the other words that I've come up with because there's at least two or three other ones. But sometimes interjecting one of those in the conversation can just lighten the mood a little bit. Even when other people are not ready to have a laugh or take things a little bit more lightly. Have you ever injected any of your South Park humor into a difficult situation? Nonstop, probably much to my detriment at times. I feel like my sense of humor is the kind where I will throw a bunch of things at the wall and 
90% of it will not land and it will get crickets or like uncomfortable silences. But then the things that do land will actually resonate with people and they'll die laughing. I'm like, okay, worth it. It was worth a 95% failure rate because that one thing landed with people. And, and if I get a laugh out of people with that, especially in a tense situation, God, that's worth it, right? That's worth every penny. And it's a belly laugh. Yes, usually. God, I, I hope so. Uh, if it's just a chuckle that I feel like I maybe need to go, just go to bed and maybe start fresh in the morning or something. I don't know. Oh my God, that is so awesome. I listened to your podcast episode about how to deal with difficult people and- um, Episode two. <laughs> well, I mean, it went back to our Tony Robbins yeah. roots. So I really actually liked it. Do you still remember giving that presentation and some of the highlights from it? I do. I do remember that. It was, it was actually one of the first speaking gigs I ever did. Uh, that was for more than you know, just a handful of, of people. And it was at a, so, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, and this was at an Agile Austin special interest group for Agile leaders. And I had already done this training, so to speak, for a couple of teams that I was managing at the time and leading at the time. And I just remember a boss that I had at the time, and it was a really good mentor for me, gave me a book called How to Deal with People You Can't Stand. And I was reading through this book and understanding kind of the frameworks that they were laying out. And in that, I found a lot of crossover with some of the Tony Robbins frameworks and, and work around the six human needs. And I remember giving that talk to this group of, it was supposed to be about 100 people. I think about 60 showed up because you know how Meetup works. And I think that my favorite part about that whole presentation wasn't even the audio that you might have heard through the podcast. It was the slide deck that I got to put together because I learned over many years of trying to put together PowerPoint presentations that slides suck always. And so I always try to put together presentations that don't suck. And so the first exercise that I did in that presentation or in that talk where I wanted people to sort of collaborate and talk about whatever it was, literally there's a picture of Richard Simmons on the slide deck and it was just him and it just said exercise. And I don't know why I did that. I don't, like, again, it's one of those throw it at the wall and see if people laugh and if it gets a belly laugh from somebody, good. You know, you've lightened the mood a little bit and we're not taking all of ourselves so seriously. It was a good presentation. It was just basically talking about building rapport with people and trying to understand where they're coming from so that you're not trying to get them to come over to your side of things. You're trying to move in the same direction, but based on everybody else's or everybody's individual motivations. And this was like, God, this is like three years ago at this point, but it's still so much that holds true. I felt like it was a Tony Robbins moment when you're like, okay, turn to the person next to your seat, introduce yourself and ask them what they had for dinner. Yeah. And it was like, ask, ask them what they had for dinner. And then I think that the next question was, ask the person on the other side of you, like, what's a trip that they're looking forward to taking? And from that, trying to gauge what needs potentially people were trying to meet from what they had for dinner and what they were, they were planning on doing for a trip. So I remember one of the answers to that what trip are you taking soon? Question, because this was in like late August, early September, something like that. And it, it was a dad taking his daughter to college, freshman orientation in, at uh, uh, Texas Tech. And I remember thinking, okay, clearly he wants to have this connection with his daughter and he's feeling a little bit uncertain about watching her go off to college, but he wants to have this time with her versus the person who is going on the same cruise that they've been going on every two years with their spouse for the last 10 years. That is a connection and sort of certainty meeting thing. You know, I think that those, those six human needs over the last, what, six years or whatever that I've learned about them and known about them have been one of the most valuable things for me to understand coming from that Tony Robbins world of what needs are people potentially trying to meet? And if you can see that, it's not that you're going to judge it or you're going to try to change it or anything like that. It's just helping you to understand a little bit better and coming from a software engineering background for 25 plus years, understanding a little bit better is like a drug for somebody who's an engineer and wants to understand how something is working. Can you talk just a little bit about each one of those needs? Yeah. I mean, so I obviously can't do it the justice that somebody like Tony Robbins can, but the six human needs as I understand them are, there are four sort of primal basic needs that everybody is trying to meet, that everybody is trying to meet, not just certain people. So everybody tries to meet every one of these needs and we do in certain ways, but the primary four needs that are, again, sort of needs of the, the self are certainty, 
being certain or confident or about things going a certain way or being a certain way and being unchanging and being the way you would expect. Then there is uncertainty or variety is another way of putting that to where, yes, we can want certainty and we can want variety in certain things. Then the next one is significance and feeling important, feeling recognized for things, feeling good or skilled or again, recognized. And then the fourth need of, of the self kind of is, is connection and at a deeper level love. And then the two sort of, I believe he calls them needs of the spirit are the uh, need for growth and for contribution. And I think the most important thing that I ever learned about those needs is that we all try to meet them all, but we usually have a primary one or two that are driving us. And in my life, I was, when I first discovered Tony Robbins work, I was trying, I was very much driven from a certainty and significance place. I wanted to be sure that things were going to go the way I expected them to. And I wanted to command and control a bunch of crap. And I also wanted to continue to grow in my career and be recognized for that growth, which is interesting because you want to grow and get better and better and better, but you also want to be sure of everything. And apparently that's not that uncommon to be certain and significance driven. And I know I was at the time. And even after my first Tony Robbins event, like a year later when I went to another event, I think I was still very much holding on to those things. And it took some time to, to be driven by different needs. And not, again, not that any of those needs are bad because we all try to meet them all, but depending on which ones are your primary ones, it can really shape the course of your life. Where do you think those needs stem from? I'm a student of life <laughs> and I love to look at all the different models that people kind of come up with. I think that this comes from being in, you know, in engineering. I'm always kind of looking at well, you've got your way of explaining this. I'm going to also look at these other six ways of explaining this. If you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's a lot of overlap, right? The very base level of Maslow's needs are, you know, security and shelter and food and like a lot of things that are certainty based. And then maybe two levels up, like belonging is one of Maslow's like key needs at like level two or three, right? And that is very similar to connection. I think that we are social animals, intellectual animals, emotional beings as much as we'd like to say and, and and you know coming from me i used to be the most independent i'm going to make it on my own kind of person as much as we'd like to say that we are independent and completely we can be isolated from people we all have the social need we all have these emotional things to fill up in our souls i love what joe rogan says one of his stand-up specials he talks about like Everybody says, oh, I'm a loner. I could go live off the grid. And he's like talking about how it's bullshit. It's like, if you're in prison, the single worst thing they can do to you is put you in solitary confinement. Like you're in prison around the worst people in the world. And the worst thing that they can do to you is put you in a room by yourself. Like that's how strong our needs are to be connected with other people. So what has that been like during Corona? I'll be honest. It's been, I mean, it's obviously been interesting and, and really complex. I will say as a single man in my, eh, let's call them late thirties, as a single man living with a 11 month old puppy and no kids, no spouse, uh, wasn't seeing anybody seriously during that time. It can be a really interesting challenge to meet some of those more social needs and to do so in a way that you're used to, to, to feel connection in the way that you used to feel connection or to find a, another way to feel connection through Zoom chats or through FaceTime with people or whatnot when you're used to more face-to-face -face communication. And then, on, you know, on top of that, you, you think about things like certainty. There's not a lot, depending on where you look, right? Your job, your income, your family, your spouse's income, your, you know, the economy. <laughs> what politicians are going to do tomorrow that's going to like totally blow up the news cycle, right? I will say that, and this didn't happen during Corona, but one of the things that has been a blessing for me over the past couple of years, and this may have come from Leadership Academy or one of these Tony Robbins things, was around having certainty, but not certainty in conditions being a certain way and in things working out the way that I want them to work out, but certainty in my ability, and I'll just say my ability, but certainty in my ability to handle whatever comes up. Now when I'm like working with my teams, right? So I've got 20 people, I'm trying to help them grow and trying to help train them and trying to help condition them into a place where they don't have to be certain that we have all the answers. 
They don't have to be certain that things are going to work out a certain way. They don't have to be certain that everything is going to be exactly as we'd expect, but they can be certain in their ability to deal with whatever comes their way. They can be certain in, in knowing that I and other people are going to help them and be there for them. And I think that that can help provide and meet some of those needs during times like this, when normally we would be looking for certainty in my paycheck's going to be there. My job's going to be there. Nothing is going to change. My relationship is stable. My, you know what I mean? So I know that it doesn't totally answering your question, but connection is hard right now. That's probably the biggest thing that I am struggling with myself personally is none of my family lives in Texas. I don't get to see any of my employees or coworkers or any of those people on a daily basis aside from through a webcam. That can be very difficult. And so sometimes I have to change the rules in my own head on what connection really means for me and what contribution really means. And does it have to manifest in a certain way or can it, can I feel connection to coworkers through talking with them via Slack or through a quick zoom call or what have you? Have you done any drive-bys? No, I, I mean, I guess I have access to their addresses, but no, that's, that's not really my thing. That feels, that feels too much like stalking an ex and finding out if there's, you know, the same cars in her driveway that there usually are. If there's another car that you're like, whose car is that? Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> Ooh, let's talk about Facebook stalking. I don't really do a lot of Facebook stalking. I have done a little bit of a attempted Google stalking, you know, when you're getting into a couple, first couple of dates with somebody or you're, you're starting to get into a relationship and you just kind of try to Google search them and figure out, is there, are there any like weird things or is there... Any felonies? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh, I'm not good enough at Google to figure out if there are any felonies or, or like weird misdemeanors or things like that. Or dissolved uh, marriages. Yeah. I, I mean, even those I'd be fine with, like everybody goes through ups and downs and failures. Like I'd say a good 50% of my relationships have been utter disasters. If Let's talk about through, that. Let's talk about some adversities you've overcome. <laughs> Actually, I want to hear your answer. Are we, are we talking about relationships here? Or are we talking about something else? You pick. And then I got to get you to do a couple better call daddy intros. Cause remember I said, I like to do those in different voices. I'd like to hear you have a go at that. <laughs> it's true. So I was thinking about this as I was listening to some of your other episodes and whether or not I really wanted to talk about this because I don't talk about it much with people. Of course you want to go there. One thing I don't share with a ton of people is that in my mid, early to mid twenties, I kind of had a reckoning around my selfishness. And like I said before, I was a very self-driven, internally driven, like I can do this all on my own sort of person. And I also kind of had this, I can do whatever I want and it won't impact anybody around me sort of mindset. And then yada, 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 uh, I spent 20 days in jail at the age of 24 for some accused traffic infractions, two uh, DUI charges in the span of about three months, three and a half months, and ended up spending a decent amount of time in county jail. Nothing crazy like crazy prison, things like that, but I met some very interesting people. I lost a job that I had just started that I thought was going to be an extremely lucrative job. And coming out of that, I had like an insurance settlement to live off of for a couple months. I had this huge black mark on my record that even with it not being like a crazy, like violent felony sort of thing, like it was still a problem. And the way I got back into the workforce into getting back on my feet was through prior employer who valued me, who appreciated me, not just as my contribution to their company, but, you know, just in, in general as a person. And it was kind of at that point that I realized that it is the people who are there for you and the people that you're there for that make the most difference, right? That, that, that matter the most. And that was at the point when I was about 24, 25, that I really started shifting my mindset into helping other people and, and being more of a leader and being less uh, internally focused as a selfish 20 something sociopath as many of us are and really just trying to do what I could for others. I had a dozen years of software knowledge. I was getting pretty good at my craft. I had people who were helping me out. I had no car for like six years. So there are still people who are like, would drive me to get groceries and do all this other crazy stuff. And I'm like, why are you doing this? And it was because they could and they wanted to. And I kept seeing that and realizing that I had been a selfish a-hole <laughs> for so many years and I could instead be better. I could be something else. We got to talk a little bit more about what happened. Did you get pulled over? 
the first time I got pulled over and agreed to the field sobriety test or whatever had happened. And after that happened, I was very cautious and careful. I realized, okay, this is, that was stupid as hell. I hired an attorney that even though I couldn't afford one. And then about four months later, I was out with friends and nobody could drive. And I felt fine at the time. And I figured I will drive and it'll be okay. And long story short, some underage kids out past curfew hit my car. And because things were on the fence, I refused to submit because I didn't want to get thrown under the bus, even though I felt like I, w- I was okay. And just because of everything that had happened, it, it led to, essentially, I had to accept the original charge. And then, because three and a half months later, some, something similar happened. And, and yeah, so long story short, in the state of Florida, whenever that happens twice in five-ish years or so, you lose your license for five years. Five years. Wow, that's yep. pretty harsh. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's two charges or two convictions or whatever in a five-year span. It, it, to me, it honestly makes sense. And so it's five years and it took about a, a year for everything to get wrapped up. So for me, it was six years. And uh, during that time, I moved to Texas. I couldn't drive in Texas. I was taking buses. Uh, this is before Uber was a thing. Now I feel like it would have been no big deal dealing with that while Uber exists and things like that. But uh, at the time, cabs sucked as they do now and buses weren't great. And yeah, six years later, I got my license back and bought a car. And I remember my dad, of all people, when I bought my car and I had it delivered and I had my license back here in Texas and it had been, you know, six plus years or whatever. I remember him telling me how proud he was of me for following the rules and dealing with the punishment that I had been given. I guess that's a testament to how they raised me because I never really saw any other option. I never saw it as, oh, well, they say I can't drive, but I'm going to do it anyway. And maybe I'm a rule follower in certain ways, but I also just didn't want to go back to what I had gone through for like that 20 days. I look at that now, and this is not to boast at all, but like I look at that now, and like, this is not even eight years ago. I spent six years without being able to get myself around. Dating is really fun whenever you have to take cabs and buses everywhere, by the way. I get the car that I really liked at the time. I had that car for five years. I had my license back. And then like three years ago, I had the opportunity to buy this amazing Tesla that I now drive, this Tesla Model S. And I think to myself, it's 2020 and I'm driving this badass luxury car. And eight years ago, I couldn't drive. That's crazy to me. And it's such a short period of time. And I'm 38. So eight years ago, I was 30 and I couldn't even like, wasn't even allowed to drive a car. And now I've got this electric space machine from the future. So it's amazing to me how things can change so quickly. And yet we get so focused in on the here and now or like what's happening in the last week or the last month or things like that. I don't know. I think about that sometimes. And I know it's a weird thing to talk about, but I mean, when I was 24, I did some dumb shit and paid penalties for it that I deserved in many cases to pay those penalties. And then I paid another six years of various penalties. And then to be able to rebuild from that, like, I don't know, every time I, I think about our culture these days and how quick we are to judge people and to write them off and to cancel them, so to speak, we are still all about second chances. And I've had my second, third, fourth chances in certain areas of my life. And I think that that's really important to remember is that we can turn it around and we shouldn't just hold people to the one dumb thing they did one time. It's really like people make mistakes. Could you forgive a murderer? Honestly, forgive them? I don't know. I could understand if somebody in a heat of passion did something that resulted in, in somebody else's death. You know, Tony Robbins talks about how everybody has like a home base where they kind of live. I've been thinking a lot lately that sometimes I feel like my home base is angry. I can be impatient with people. I can get upset when I'm driving down the highway at like five miles over the speed limit and somebody's doing 15 under the speed limit in the fucking left lane. And I like, I just get really angry. <laughs> That's not the same as murdering somebody, but I could understand in the throes of, of some anger or some passion or whatever, something happening. Now, if it's premeditated and you're doing that shit, that's different. You're talking about homicide. You're talking about murder. You're not talking about like accidental manslaughter. You're not talking about like you're in a fist fight with, you know, somebody with your buddy who you care deeply about and you hit him and he trips and, you know, dies. I don't know. I feel like I discovered empathy in my like late 20s, like literally just learned what it was. Didn't even know it was a thing before like my late 20s. Thought I was a broken person who like, nobody told me about this. Once I learned 
what empathy was and realized that this was a part of me that was missing. <laughs> I often joke that I'm like the android who finds love in the movie and like like learns how to like care about people. And like I just I plugged in empathy at one point and then just like went up to a hundred. I try to be as empathetic and understanding with people as possible because we never know where they're coming from. We never know what they've got going on in the moment. And so could I forgive a murderer? Premeditated, like awful person? Maybe not. Could I forgive murder? Probably. I'm still a little curious about your experience in the county jail. Do you remember any of it? Oh, oh God, yes. The boredom is stifling. I, I mean, I'm not even joking. Like, I, I spent a couple days, a couple of the first days in what most people picture when they picture jail, which is big open area and a cell with you know, like one or two other people in there. Spent a few days in that. That was awful because it's, it's not like bars to like a cell door where you can kind of look out and see everything. It was like being locked in a tomb, right? It was a big metal door with like a, you know, a little uh, peephole in there or whatever. And that was pretty terrible. And that was the first few days. I remember having to call my parents to ask them to contact my lawyer to try to up the amount of money I was going to give them even though I didn't have any money. Trying not to cry when you're on the phone with your parents in jail. That's a really interesting emotional thing to deal with when you're trying to keep a tough face on and you just disappointed like the two people who mean the most to you in the world. That's really, really difficult thing. At some point I did get put into more of a open area kind of pod where it was like big open area. And then there were just kind of, I don't even know how to describe it. There were just areas where there were bunks and there might be like, you know, eight bunks in a wing and then eight bunks in another wing and you would sleep in those bunks. That was a little bit better because it was more open air. It was more almost like a, like a camp or a dorm sort of scenario as far as the, 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 uh, the layout of it. I do remember waking up once or twice and knowing that there was definite sexual things going on in the bathroom areas. I met a few people who had really been taken advantage of by the system. Like I was already pretty small government and anti-government at the time, but hearing from people who were given a choice of, let's just say that they're given a choice of three months in jail or nine months of probation. And they choose the nine months of probation, but the probation comes with the ankle monitor. It comes with all these things. And if you violate one time, if you show up at home at 7.01 PM instead of 7 PM, they will violate you and you will do the rest of that nine months in jail versus the three months you would have done initially. And so people who had chosen what they thought was a better option and then got completely steamrolled by a system that is set up to keep them in the system, not to rehabilitate them. And that's something I feel really strongly about to this day. And it's, it's something that I know that most of the people that I met in county jail in my 20 days there did the thing that they were charged with. I also know that the way that we charge people is bullshit. I know the way that we punish people is bullshit. You could hit a curb with your car and get charged with six different moving violations. So you have to plea down to two of them, even though you did one thing. And all six of those violations mean the same thing, but they are going to charge you with all six so that you will basically accept the guilty plea on, or a no contest or whatever on two of them. Same thing goes for violent crimes. Same thing goes for financial or tax evasion or whatever the hell, they will charge you with four or five different things that are all kind of the same thing, just so that you will not try to fight it. And so you'll actually plea down to something smaller. And that's an admission of guilt, essentially. If I hit a curb with my car, they should charge me with whatever that is, not five other things, not endangering the public, not failure to use a signal, not reckless driving, not like six things on top of each other. That's, that's a bit of a rant. <laughs> I totally agree with that. I've actually had a DUI. <laughs> I was underage and hmm. I truthfully wasn't drunk, but in Kentucky, there is a zero alcohol policy. Yeah. And I was speeding, trying to get home in time for a curfew. And my mm -hmm. friend was throwing up out the window. So I saw the cop. I knew we were done. They asked us if we wanted to take the breathalyzer at the scene or at jail. And I chose jail. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was like, oh, maybe that'll wear off by the time I get there. Yeah. So, it didn't. My second one, when I was in the accident, there are people in my car and they were tending to them and taking them to the hospital. They asked me to do the breathalyzer and the fields test. And I said, no, it took me to, to holding into jail. And then they said, because I was in an accident, I guess I, I, I was bleeding a little bit, right? They said, we're going to take you to the hospital to tend to your wounds. And like I said, I was fully coherent, lucid, all those things. 
So I'm like, yeah, take me to the hospital. I'm like, okay, we're going to take your blood. And I'm like, you don't need to take my blood to like patch this up. And I'm like, well, no, we need to take your blood. And I'm like, no, you don't. Like, just patch up this thing on my forehead. And I'm like, well, we have to take your blood now. I'm like, and like, literally they were trying to test me in an underhanded fashion and test my blood alcohol level, even though they, they took me there under false pretenses. And there's nothing I can do about that. Or there's nothing I can do about that after the fact to be like, they were trying to mislead and swindle me, right? It's like, I don't have any rights at that point as a person. And it's, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I Good pleaded stuff. no contest because I didn't really know how to navigate. And, and this was the second time that I had been in trouble with the police in like three and a half months. So I didn't really have an option. Had it been my first time, I think everything would have been better. I think it would have been better off. But my first time I was definitely in the wrong because that was still outstanding. The second time I was just like, yep, uh, there's no, I don't really have a leg to stand on here. <laughs> How do you think things could be better? That's a really good question. I think the thing that I mentioned earlier about piling on all these charges, I think that we could do some work around that. And I'm going to make up an example. But if, if I'm protesting something in the city, we've got a lot of protests going on right now. If I'm protesting something vocally in the city and a police officer wants to arrest me, arresting me and charging me with something is one thing with, let's just say public endangerment. I don't know. But charge me with public endangerment, failure to obey a lawful order, battery of a law enforcement officer because I yelled at him, right? And, and you, you add all these things on there, that is them stacking the deck in order for the person to be guilty to some degree. I think that's a first step. I really can't stand how litigious our society is in general. And I think it prevents people from being able to express themselves, be their true selves. I think it also honestly maintains the imbalance of power. And that's both like with the public and individuals like you or me. And it's also with companies and organizations. If a big company can file a suit against a small company for some BS patent infringement or something like that, when it's nonsense, but the small company can't pay to fight the legal battle, that is the system stacked against the little person, the little guy. So I think that's, that's a start. It's certainly not my wheelhouse to know how to fix that. It is scary and depressing to see how much people of color are disproportionately impacted by the law. One of the people I met when I was a guest of the county was a gentleman, super nice guy, owned a basically like one man bathroom remodeling company. He redid tile, he redid showers, he redid like all this stuff and whatnot. And he had lost his license through too many points on his license or this or that. And because he would drive to people's houses to redo their bathrooms, he was still driving around. Was that wrong? Yes, technically, because he didn't have a license and he shouldn't have been doing that. But the way that he got put in jail for 28 days was he was at a stoplight. He was looking down at his phone or something. I say he left his foot off the gas and like tapped a lady in front of him at the stoplight. And she said, we need to call the police and do this the right way. And they violated him for driving while license suspended or revoked. And he was in jail for 28 days. Black guy. Be willing to bet most white people in that situation would not have been in for the full 28 days. It seems pretty harsh. Yes. He was in there for longer than me. And I was in, you know, in for suspected two DUIs in four months, right? He was going to work as a small businessman. I, I definitely think that the, the punishments do not often, they're not often evenly distributed. How did the police treat you? Sneakily. Again, like I said, they, I remember them taking me to jail. Now, this was 14 years ago, so mind you, details might not be as reliable. But I remember like being put in sort of like a holding cell. And they're like, oh, we're going to take you, like I said, to the hospital to treat your injuries. And then they're like, we need to take your blood. And I'm like, no, you don't. The big thing that I've noticed, and again, this is county jail. This is not crazy, like, movie-style violent prison. There's no respect for anybody who's incarcerated. None. You're, you're less than human. I tried to be as nice and polite as possible to any of the guards, any of the people, and they would, like, if I asked them, hey, when can I possibly get to use the phone, or how do I reload money onto my uh, grocery or whatever it was, my commissary, they would either ignore me or just be like, get out of my face, inmate. <laughs> so you don't get treated like a human being. There's not a lot of hope for rehabilitation whenever you're treated as less than human. What was the dinner like? Let me put it this way. The first week that I was incarcerated, I lost 10 pounds. I'm not a large person. Even now during COVID, when I've got a little bit of that extra COVID weight on, I went from like 170 to 160 in that first week. 
I remember the first bologna sandwich, which was a piece of bread and bologna, was just as green as it was bologna color. I had Thanksgiving dinner in, in jail. That was, I was like, think of the worst like public school lunch you could have at Thanksgiving. Make it about five times worse and about four times smaller. Yeah. That's crazy. It wasn't great. It was very illuminating. That's for sure. I'm, I'm thankful I had, my parents had, had uh, moved to Florida at the time and, and I had to do, I did 16 days at first and then about a year later I had to do my last four days. And my parents come to town to like watch my dog and they dropped me off and picked me up and this and that. And I, just, I thank God for them and for them being as understanding as they were. I don't know if you've ever disappointed your parents. Oh, yes. <laughs> without intending to disappoint them. And you're like, I'm the worst human being ever. And they're still supporting me. What the hell is wrong with them? <laughs> it's, that was, honestly, I think it was at that point that I really started to see my parents as, as human. Not like as imperfect human or, or whatnot, but as they were disappointed in me and they could still love me and they could still be there for me, you know, all those things. And at the same time, like I, I've had so much guilt and shame about what I had put them through, even though they weren't going through this. It's, but I still think about, and this is the dumbest thing to think about, but I used to watch like the really dumb comedy shows with my parents. Like we watched like the, the uh, blue collar comedy with Jeff Foxworthy and Bill Engvall and all these people. And you would appreciate this because of working, you know, where you worked in the past, I remember Foxworthy saying something in one of the stand-ups about like one time I want to be on one of these TV shows and see them be like, my mama was great. My daddy was great. I'm just a shithead. And like at that moment when I'm calling my parents and trying not to cry in jail in front of all these like tough people, like that's exactly what was going through my head was they did everything right. I'm just a shithead. Oh my God. That's so good. Wow. What were they like? Uh, they were great. I mean, loving, supportive, we were a pretty solid sort of middle-class rural Pennsylvania family. My dad worked for the same company for like 20 plus years after spending 20 plus years in the military. My mom tried to work odd jobs here and there, usually ended up leaving after a couple of years because it screwed up their taxes like a little bit too much. She made just enough for, tax, for the next tax bracket to cancel it out. But yeah, I mean, they came as much as they could to baseball games and wrestling matches and piano recitals. And yeah, they, they were really good. They, they were a little sheltering. They, they wanted to, to protect us. And I think in many ways that led to me wanting to, you know, go to Florida for college and go to a party school because I wanted to experience some of those other things. I think they did the absolute best they could and they did a really freaking good job. And it's something that made me realize that there is no perfect parenting. I trace being a perfectionist, which I have been for much of my life, back to certain things that happened in my childhood and the way my parents raised me, but it was nothing intentional on their part. They wanted the best for me. They wanted the absolute best and they wanted me to do my best and they wanted me to be proud of myself. And yet I can still trace back to being a child and coming home with a report card with, couple, with all A's and a B and hearing my mom say, good job, what are we going to do about that B in English? And knowing that that led to things developing in me and it wasn't anything that they did intentionally, you know? That's really cool though, that they put you in all of those lessons. Yeah. I mean, I'm fortunate that I've, I've had exposure to like Tony Robbins and some other people like that, where I can reflect back and really appreciate what my parents did for me. And I, I know this happens with a lot of people, but they, you always talk about how you appreciate your parents more and more, maybe when you have kids of your own or when you become more of an adult. And I can look back now and realize like how difficult it must've been to raise two boys in rural Pennsylvania, even, you know, as simple of a life as we kind of had. I appreciate them more and more every day. And what's funny is like to this day, I can go and visit my parents and we can sit around and have a drink and we can chat and we can shoot the shit. And it's totally different than maybe when I was in college or like going a little bit crazy, but like I have so much respect and appreciation for them now compared to when I thought they were just trying to tell me what to do growing up, you know? Did you tell them that you loved them in prison? I did. In jail, let's be fair. <laughs> Big difference in county jails, like short-term shit. I think prison's like something like 12 months or 23 months or more or whatever. That's when they put you in like federal prison. I told them that then. I told them that. I tell them that all the time now. I told them that every chance I got. You mentioned something like this today, actually, I think on social media. I think what I didn't tell them enough before and what I try to tell them now is how much I appreciate them and how much I appreciate what they did for me, what they gave for me, what they gave up for me. I mean, driving me or my brother three and a half hours for a wrestling tournament on a weekend 
to watch me wrestle one match and lose and then have to drive back home. When you're a kid, you don't think about that. But they did so much for me. And I think that when I was growing up, I just wanted to get out of there, not because I disliked where I grew up or anything like that, but like we, we were firmly middle class. And I was dead set on making more money than my family had as quickly as possible after college. And honestly, I did by the time I was like 24, 25, and I was, you know, making really good money. And I just, I didn't appreciate everything that they had sacrificed for me. And they did it willingly. They didn't have to. I don't know. I didn't expect this for this conversation to go that direction. But even without having kids of my own, I have so much respect for parents and especially my parents, because I, I think they did as close to the perfect job as they possibly could have done. And then I look at the crap that I put them through and the crap I put myself through. And it's like, that's the epitome of not having control and certainty over things, right? Going back to our earlier conversation, they did basically everything right. And here we are. <laughs> I love talking about certainty and uncertainty because we're in such uncertain times. I don't know. I, I, I think that I used to freak out about certainty a lot or uncertainty a lot. I used to freak out about uncertainty a lot because... I wanted to understand and know and expect what, what was coming, right? And again, growing up working in tech, started coding when I was 12. And when you're writing code, you're in control of the whole thing, the whole system, right? So it's, it's very easy to feel that, to fill that need for certainty when you're controlling everything that's happening. And I think that can spread into other parts of your life. I think that there is beauty now in just going with the flow a little bit. And that kind of goes back to that playfulness. And I can make an offhand joke or I can do say this or say that and it may not resonate with people or they may get offended or they, and there is some real joy that I have in not caring. <laughs> if I make a random South Park reference or even, even better, I've been talking a lot about space balls lately <laughs> because a coworker showed me somebody that was making space balls, the face mask, face masks. And I ordered a bunch of them for my family and they took like a month and a half to, to arrive, but we finally got them. Do you know how many people there are who've never seen a Mel Brooks movie? It's, it's astounding. And I can make a random Spaceballs reference and people are like, what? Is that a joke from a thing? Is that like a Star Wars? I'm like, oh, you're the worst. Anyway, I, certainty and uncertainty, it's so interesting because I think that we want certainty in a lot of areas in our life that are important to us. And yet a lot of times it's the uncertain things that happen that bring us the most joy. I just saw a social media post about that today. I think The Rock was talking about it, actually. Interesting. Yeah, he was saying things that he thought he wanted so bad when they didn't happen. Actually, other beautiful things happened instead. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think going to a few Tony Robbins events left me with is that life can be, if you see it this way, a series of happy little coincidences. And I look at like, I moved to Austin back in 2011. I was at a job there for about six months that I didn't really like. I thought I'd be working with small teams. I was working by myself on a lot of crap, I was, but I, was, I stuck there because I'm a very loyal employee. Six months that I got laid off, I thought that that was the end of it. I thought that was terrible. The company I went to work for like three and a half weeks later, I was there for seven years and it got me to a place I could never imagine being at, developing leadership skills, the people that I got to work with, the project I got to work on, the desire to start a podcast, to, start and grow a business. Like all of that stuff happened because some idiot couldn't manage the contracts at the first company I worked at and decided I needed to go. That to me is amazing. And the fact that we're talking right now, I'll give, I'll give you a, a fun series of happy coincidences. Back in like 2014, something like that, I went to a meetup during, during a lunch. I left work for like an hour and a half, two hour lunch break, which was probably a bad idea to begin with. Went to a meetup for this girl who she brought in a chef to teach people how to like cook healthy meals or something like that. She was basically building and trying to fund an app for low income people to eat healthy. Went to this meetup, really enjoyed the whole thing. Left there, left a notebook there. Left like my like primary notebook that I used to take notes in. Get in touch with her. I'm going to meet up with her to pick up my notebook. I meet up with her like a week later. She tells me about another event she's doing that's very similar. I go to that event. Three weeks later, at that event is one of her friends who's hosting it at like her condo complex. I'm attracted to this woman. Flirting with her, she starts talking about this Tony Robbins event she just came back from and how amazing it was. And because literally I'm just trying to impress her, I'm like, tell me about it. I want to hear all about this thing you went to. You know, crazy cults, like whatever, right? She tells me about it. I'm impressed. I'm considering it. She's telling me I have to go. I'm considering it because she's hot. 
she keeps nagging me on Facebook and tagging me in things and saying, you should go to this, you should go to this, you should go to this. Eventually I go fast forward 15 other random coincidences later, you and I are meeting at an event and talking. Had I not left that notebook, where would we be now? I don't know. I love that. That's such a beautiful ending to your story tonight. Thank you. I love that you made all those connections. It's the way my brain works. I think back to like, how did I end up here? <laughs> I mean, part of the reason I want to do this podcast even is kind of retracing some of my steps. I have people that have stayed put in every location I have lived. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, what, what would have happened if I would have stayed on Springer? What would have happened if I would have stayed in Chicago the first time or not moved to LA or not gone to Italy or not lived in Kentucky for the second time? There's, I've had so many different chapters and I've kept in touch with people all throughout the years, 20 years. And I was like, it's wow. Our, it's in our moments of decision that our destiny is shaped, right? I mean, I moved to Austin not knowing a single person here. I had many friends who said, I wish I could do that. I'm like, you could if you really wanted to. It wasn't easy. But once my mind was made up, that's what I did. My mind was made up. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm really big on not regretting things. Like I may feel bad if I wrong somebody intentionally or this or that, but like, I don't really like to regret things. I, and I would, I'm more so focused on, I don't want to regret not taking action on my decision. All in baby. Yeah. I'm so glad that you told me about that chapter. Wow. I feel like you've been holding out on me. It's not something I share openly. It doesn't really go along with my narrative. Well, thank you for taking action and coming on my show tonight. Of course. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Next to the caliber of people you've had, I'm flattered. You're a superhero. Thank you. You're too kind. Let's hear from my daddy. I thought that this is a very interesting topic, as you know. Sean has gotten a lot of encouragement, first from his parents, which he realizes later in life. But Tony Robbins gets two points on this one as well. But isn't it funny how everybody wants to have certainty? And the only certainty that really exists is learning how to deal with uncertainty. (laughs) Having the tools and the knowledge and the skills to be able to pivot or adapt to uncertainty or change is the way to have some hope of having certainty in your life. I don't know how good I am at handling uncertainty. (laughs) Well, guess what? Most of us do not have the skill level or the patience or the wisdom. It really takes time to develop it. And everybody's on a different track of figuring out whether or not they're able to control in one's mind what's out there. And, and all the changes that can occur, even from one day to another, just when you think something's going your way, some of the variables can change on that day, and it's, it gives you a whole new day. It's a whole new set of probabilities. It's a whole new set, set of statistics that are thrown your way, where you have to reevaluate sometimes right on the fly. And the other thing that I found to be quite amusing is that he comes up with these made-up words to put a little humor in it to put, take sometimes the edge off of things. And as you know, your father makes up his own words to songs. He comes up with words like bouche de bouille and, and uh, bull de bouille and schnicknick or schnicknick the blicknick. And it gives people a laugh. The funny part is, is that throughout my life, putting a humorous spin on everything does seem to really help get through some of the tougher moments in life. I asked the baby today whether he was a schnicknick or an ablicknick. <laughs> And he probably laughed at you, didn't he? He said in a blicknick. He said he's a blicknick, huh? <laughs> that's wonderful. Made me laugh. So that's the thing. The idea is that we can't always take ourselves too seriously. Because if you put yourself, I told you, you have to be able to give a person to be able to breathe through the lines of life or even through a paragraph. If it has to meet every straight edge, every straight line, every uh, rigid form of life, it's almost impossible to be able to live to that standard. And a lot of people like you and me and Sean that try to perfect ourselves, which we then call ourselves perfectionists, we put an extra burden on ourselves where we have to achieve certain things. And then you want to say to yourself, the question is, at how fast of a rate, how successful does something have to be in order for it to be continue to be pursued? And what kind of effort does it take 
to get from A to B when that's not even anything but a short-term goal. You don't see the whole big picture that we really want to go from A to Z, not just A to B. He's very interested in purposeful living. He is. And the other thing is, is that his journey also, he said something very interesting, that even during some of his darkest moments, he was able to take his experience that he went to jail and he found out what kind of backup he has from his parents and then finding out that here where he thought he could conquer the world and be independent. And some of us all had that, those feelings. He finds out that his parents really have his back and have really helped him develop tools with different lessons and different things so that he can adjust to whatever is being thrown out at him. It's really quite an ironic twist because the thing that made his father most proud is he was standing up to be accountable for his actions, whether they were good or, in this case, bad, by being accountable for your actions and not having an excuse and accepting that maybe you did something wrong, his father was very proud of that. And the fact is, is that we all want to help cure and buffer and be a safety net to our children. But we also need our children to be able to stand on their own two feet and be accountable for what they do and the choices that they make and not just blame everybody else around them for their mistakes. You mean I can't blame you? Well, if you have to, you can. I can handle it. (laughs) Better you than somebody else. (laughs) That's right. i rather still take the blame for everything and be able to uh, rise above it because it makes me a stronger and a tougher person. And as you know, I also believe in giving people second chances. I do believe that we learn a lot more from losses or mistakes than we do it when, than when we're on a winning streak. I don't mind giving people second or third chances. The difference is that I've had to grow up is They have to be genuine. They have to come from the heart. They have to come from the head where people are not just pulling the wool over your eyes, where they're just playing you as a sucker. You have to also make sure that they really mean it, that they really want to, even though they've tripped up a few times, that they really do want to have the knowledge and skills to do better. And I would like to think that my experience with the Metalite Corporation in business, and we're still doing a little bit on the side now, as you know, for 50 years that a lot of the people that have come into my life from that company, that they were better for it, having that relationship with me and the company, that we did try very hard to build a level of skills and talent and stability, as well as accountability of people's actions and where they could develop and grow, which is also falls into that motivational speech that we all try to make and understand. And I think that There's a lot of people that did really well working at the Metalite Corporation and were better people for that experience. I think so. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now... Only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.